If I mention the name John Barry to any cinephile worth his salt, they will undoubtedly think I am referring to the arranger and composer John Barry, who passed away in 2011 at the age of 77. And that makes sense, because that John Barry is a legend. Born John Barry Pendergast in New Yorkshire, England, he had a career that spanned over 50 years and is mentioned alongside other legendary composers like Jerry Goldsmith, Elmer Bernstein, and John Williams. This particular John Barry won the Oscar for Best Score not once, but four times. He won for Born Free in 1966, The Lion in Winter in 1968, Out of Africa in 1986, and Dances with Wolves in 1990. He also has one for writing the song Born Free. So that's five Oscars. Add in that he has a BAFTA, a Golden Globe, several Grammys, was knighted by the Queen of England, and is in the Songwriting Hall of Fame and I think I've already made the case for his legendary status. But if that's not enough for you, there's one theme he's responsible for that is so iconic and familiar that I could probably play any version of it and you would know it. So let's give that a try. Yes, that's the James Bond theme, in 8-bit. In fact, Barry did the score for 12 Bond pictures, his final one being The Living Daylights in 1987. He's so prolific, he even has a Golden Raspberry Award. So that, in a nutshell, is John Barry. And now that we have that out of the way, let's get to what this episode is really about. In the 1970s, there was another John Barry who worked in movies. He was an art director, production designer, and second unit director. Hardly the kinds of credits that get the attention they usually deserve. But this other John Barry was instrumental in giving the films he worked on a unique visual appearance, so much so that you would recognize his work just as much as you would recognize that James Bond theme. My name is Dan Delgado. And today, we're taking a look at this seemingly forgotten artist in an episode we're calling The Other John Barry. Welcome to the Industry, presented by Movie Maker. It's February 1975, and John Barry is hard at work on the picture Lucky Lady. It's a throwback film. A 1930s set rum-running adventure with action, music, romance, a lot of boats, and big stars. Liza Minnelli, Gene Hackman, and Burt Reynolds are the leads, and Stanley Donnan, known for musicals like Singing in the Rain, is directing. This is the year 20th Century Fox is bringing back Prohibition. Oh, whoopee! Gene Hackman, Liza Minnelli, and Burt Reynolds as Kibby, Walker, and Claire. A spunky dame. Watch it, Buster! A snazzy dude. And you're dancing with the slickest guy in the joint. And a tough customer. You just step a little closer to the microphone. I didn't get what you were saying. Who had some high times running rum aboard the Lucky Lady. Gene Hackman, Liza Minnelli, and Burt Reynolds. Lucky Lady! In Stanley Donnan's Lucky Lady. Lucky Lady. 
It's intended to be a surefire hit, a Christmas release, fun for everyone, something that will really pack them in. It won't, but that was the idea. For Barry, though, it will be a pivotal movie in his career. In his second film with Donnan, they had worked previously on the also-now-forgotten The Little Prince. And Lucky Lady is also the first time he works with Roger Christian. I first met him in Mexico. There was a very small art department, John Barry, Norman Reynolds and Les Billy, working on Lucky Lady. It was a mammoth film. I mean, huge. They'd become burdened under the pressure of making... I mean, there were 52 organized boats fighting on the ocean. Huge sets. You know, it was 1940s rum-running film. So Les Billy and I had worked together as art directors, or me as set decorator and art director, on quite a number of films. We kind of partnered together. So he was down there. They were getting more and more into trouble. The whole film was. It was a huge, expensive overrun for Fox. I think at the time, the most expensive film they'd ever made. I got a call saying, would you be able to go to work for John Barry and Les Dilly? And they're in a place you'll never have heard of called Wymus in Mexico. I'd been there, actually. And I said, oh, no, I know it. So um, he said, could you be willing to get on a plane like in two days? And I said, yeah, sure because I knew of John Barry's work. Got on the plane and went down, met John, and they just said, can you get stuck in, do this, do this, talk factory, get this boat organized, and I just got stuck in with him. And we, we became both friends and um, respectful of each other's work. Roger Christian is a filmmaker who's done it all in the industry. Set decorating, production design, directing, you name it. And on Lucky Lady, he watched a big production get a bit out of hand probably because Stanley Donnan might not have been the right guy for the job. I think he was just, it's kind of miscast. <laughs> like, as a director on a huge, massive action film. I mean, a lot of it was action, but he was one of the greatest song and dance men directors, you know? And because Lisa Minnelli was a, a nightclub singer, and because of her, I think he got chosen because that was such an important element in the film, and it had to be got right, and it, it needed someone like Stanley to deal with Lisa Minnelli, who was a very kind of nervous, jittery, and um, insecure actress. So he had second unit directors and other, and I, I think, you know, John Barry was a huge rock that just got stuff done. Burt Reynolds later said that while he enjoyed making Lucky Lady, that Donnan seemed lost at times, that he was scared of the boats, scared of the explosions, of the gunshots. Just to tell you the size of a second unit, we counted 500 lunchboxes one day. It was massive. We were filming boats, 50 boats fighting on the oceans, all that stuff. You know, and I, I know the first AD said they were, the end of the film was a huge firefight battle on the beaches of the boats. And um, Stanley took one look and Yvette Mimir, his wife, arrived and he said, oh, I'm going. And he disappeared. He left it to the second unit directors to work. It was 10 nights of nights. He just didn't want to be dealing with it. And even though Lucky Lady is a disappointment with critics and audiences alike, it sets up John Barry for his next job. Barry had been hired on a new science fiction picture and was putting his team together for it. And that's when he came to see Roger Christian. John had been up to San Francisco and up to San Anselmo to work with George and Ralph Macquarie on how on earth to do this film with so little money and what the vision was. 
he called and told us to meet in Los Angeles, and we did. And he said, look, it's yours if you want. John George wants to hire us. He wants me as a production designer. Well, I'm sure if you'd like to set decorate it, then the job's yours. If you want it, just turned up on August the 1st in London, and that's what we did. The Gary he's referring to is producer Gary Kurtz. George is George Lucas. And that next film is Star Wars. You see, Roger Christian is a Star Wars legend. This is the man who designed the lightsaber and Han Solo's blaster and a lot of other things, too. And George Lucas was so impressed with the production design of Lucky Lady, he hires the men responsible for it for Star Wars. That's Roger Christian, Les Dilley, Norman Reynolds, and John Barry. But before we get to a galaxy far, far away, let's go back to the beginning. Born in 1935 in the UK, John Barry first entered the industry in the early 1960s. He was working as an apprentice to Elliot Scott. Scott was an experienced art director and production designer who had a major influence on Barry. While his name may not be familiar to you, there's a good chance that you've seen some of Scott's work from the 1980s. He worked on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and The Last Crusade, as well as Labyrinth and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And after getting a few minor credits while working on some British films, Barry found himself working with none other than Stanley Kubrick. Barry had been hired to work on Kubrick's follow-up to 2001 A Space Odyssey, Napoleon. Napoleon would end up falling apart in pre-production and is considered by many to be the greatest movie never made. Barry only worked on it for a week, but Kubrick was so impressed with him that he hired him for his next film, A Clockwork Orange. Set in the near future, the controversial film is a satire full of social commentary, ultraviolence, sexual violence, pornographic images, Beethoven, and bizarre sets designed by John Barry. Kubrick was a notoriously meticulous filmmaker, and working with him was, as you might expect, no day in the park. After tasking Barry with looking through hundreds of possible locations to shoot at, Kubrick decided the best thing to do was use an old factory. Barry would repurpose the factory as a makeshift soundstage that Kubrick could use over and over for different locations. For the opening of the film, set in the Karova Milk Bar, Barry created movable blocks to create the look of the bar, which helped set the tone of the film. Though only on screen for about two minutes, it's become an iconic image. The bar is black and there are white statues of naked women in various sexual positions around. These were statues done from photographs Barry took himself of actual models. Years later, in 1997, a bar in New York City opened up calling itself the Corova Milk Bar, based on the film. Barry said regarding the look of A Clockwork Orange, We tried to project the degeneration of modern design to further degeneracy in the near future. It was an effort to design the ill-formed taste of the intellectually depraved people who rely on commercial interests to inform their tastes. A Clockwork Orange was a big hit when released in 1971. Critics loved and hated the film. Vincent Camby of the New York Times referred to it as brilliant and dangerous, which may be the best way to sum up the reaction it caused. Barry would get a BAFTA nomination for his production design. It would be the first of three that he would get in his career. Made for about $2.2 million, A Clockwork Orange took in over $25 million in the United States. And it made John Barry someone filmmakers wanted to work with. You'd be hard-pressed to find a movie with a more recognizable design than Star Wars. From the locations, to the look of the sets, to the design of the ships, the entire production is about as well-known as it gets. Think about it for a minute. 
the locations and the sets in Star Wars, because John Barry has his fingerprints all over them. So first of all, there's Tatooine, the desert planet that Luke Skywalker lives on. That was John Barry. John had designed the little prints in Tunisia and going on George's descriptions and what Ralph Macquarie had painted, the first two illustrations of the landscapes in uh, what became Tatooine, he knew that he could do it in Tunisia and it was very close to London and incredibly cheap at the time. It had this ancient world that he could convert. So he said, once you get to London, I'll take you there. And that was Tatooine. And there's also the Death Star and the Millennium Falcon. So he immediately said, look, you need a full-size set because you've got actors running in and out of it, fights and all this stuff going on. So he said, what I'll do is build half of it. And he worked with them how they would do a map painting for the rest. And of course, the famous cantina scene. For instance, the cantina set that Ralph Macquarie had designed didn't work for the script. It was a beautiful design, but it didn't. You couldn't see the entrance, the bar, the way the action worked, and then the booth. So John redesigned it completely. George never questioned it. He just trusted him so much. And he was right. You know, it's it's an iconic scene. And it's not as though Star Wars was some easy shoot either. Sure, you might see those behind-the-scenes pictures of some shaggy-looking guys working together and think it was a big, fun enterprise. But you'd be wrong. Director George Lucas had his hands full with his crew a crew that, for the most part, did not believe in the film they were making. Stood by George's side against a crew who had no clue what they were doing. They were literally working for money. They had no understanding of it. They thought it was a fairy story that no one was ever going to see. The director of photography was abusive and rude to George the entire way through, and he led the crew against him, and it was an act of exhaustion for George. They put him in hospital at the end. They thought he had a heart attack, and it was sheer exhaustion. But of course, I don't even have to tell you how this one ended up. Roger Christian could tell that despite the struggles with the crew, that they were working on something special. George has said it himself. In fact, it just came out now on a comment I see, which we were really honored with. He said, nobody on the crew stood by me or believed in this film except for the art department. And he told me to my face, to Rick McCullum, the producer, when I met them again on Phantom Menace, that there were only six people stood by his side, and that was John and I and Les and Norman. And we were and against a crew who were against us. But I just knew, you know, I, honestly, when you see Tunisia, and I love it, those African countries, when you saw this landscape and these droids walking around and the stormtroopers, I knew we had something special. And... Being on the set, I used to go down and introduce the actors onto the Millennium Falcon for the first time. They were gobsmacked, literally seeing the ship and seeing the cantinas, seeing the Death Star. It looked incredible, and so were the characters in it. And while you don't need me to tell you that Star Wars was the biggest hit of all time in 1977, you may not know that it also cleaned up at the Oscars that year. No, it didn't win any of the major awards it was up for, like Best Picture, Best Director, or Best Supporting Actor. Alec Guinness was nominated. But it absolutely dominated everything else. Original score, costume design, film editing, sound mixing, visual effects, and Best Production Design. And even George Lucas's wife, Marsha Lucas, took home an Oscar as a part of the editing team. It's notable that George Lucas himself, though, went home empty-handed that night. 
I asked Roger Christian what it was like. What was it like to win an Oscar? We all had a long kind of busy lunch and had a, I could drink then, I couldn't, now I'm allergic to it, but we all had a few glasses of wine and we thought, you know, we'd just have fun because we're never going to win this. Science fiction never wins anything and this is not going to happen. So when the names were called, yeah, it's true, you know. <laughs> I always hear people who ask actors what happened. They say, well, you don't understand, your brain goes dead. And when the production team won the Oscar, it was John Barry who did their acceptance speech. Here's Greer Garson announcing the winners with a very Oscar-worthy pronunciation of the words, Star Wars. And the winner is our John Barry, Norman Reynolds, and Leslie Dilly for Star Wars. Set decoration, Roger Christian. comes out from him and, and we, we'd seen the special effects guys all jumping about and dancing and thanking their dogs and hundreds of you know unusual people doing that and we just said John you say something if we go up let's do it with dignity uh, we're very pleased to accept this beautiful award on behalf of all our friends and patriots who worked so hard to make the sets of Star Wars a success and there's one man whose name should be engraved on this above everybody else and whose name should be on every frame of Star Wars, and that's George Lucas. Thank you, George. Following up a mega hit like Star Wars is no easy task. The entire production design team was very much in demand now, and for John Barry, that's great news, because his next movie is also a big hit. From a doomed planet in a distant galaxy to a fantastic underground hideaway. From the fortress of solitude to the bustling city room of the Daily Planet. Look, up on the screen, it's Superman. Superman, the movie. While Star Wars was a modestly budgeted film that took the world by surprise, Superman, the movie, was quite the opposite. At the time, it was the most expensive film ever made, $55 million, and there was a huge anticipation for it. The producers of Superman the Movie knew a good thing when they saw it. They snagged up three-quarters of the Oscar-winning production design team from Star Wars, John Barry, Les Dilley, and Norman Reynolds. And if you're wondering about the fourth, Roger Christian, he did all right for himself. He ended up working on Alien instead. After his Oscar win, Barry found himself with even more responsibility on Superman the movie than he had had on any other film. Here, not only was he head of production design, but he was also named the second unit director. He even makes an appearance in the making of Superman documentary. The whole operation took place under the guiding hand of John Barry, the man who designed Star Wars. Well, Star Wars is much uh, grittier sort of story, This, whereas... Uh, Superman is, has a much more poetic element, doesn't it? I mean, there he is in a red cloak and a blue suit and red boots. But, so it is already much more of a fantasy. This is the biggest film stage in the world. And over the next 10 weeks, about 100 people are going to turn it into uh, a magical part of the Arctic where Superman's fortress of solitude is... Where I'm standing now will be the sea, a lot of pack ice. But soon, 
All the planning and building must end, and the actors take over. Superman the movie was released on December 15, 1978, to critical acclaim and box office glory. It would play in theaters for 54 weeks. John Barry's vision of what Superman's home planet of Krypton looks like set the standard for how Krypton would be portrayed, not just for other movies, also for TV shows and even comic books. A good example of this is the DC six-issue miniseries Man of Steel and the four-issue miniseries The World of Krypton, both from the mid-1980s. And this brings us to Saturn 3. Saturn 3, a technologically perfect world where mistakes are impossible because the impossible is unthinkable. This year, the inhabitants of Saturn 3 are about to experience the unthinkable. Something is wrong on Saturn 3. Rated R. Check local newspapers for a theater near you. Saturn 3, released in 1980, is a sci-fi thriller starring Farrah Fawcett, Kirk Douglas, Harvey Keitel, and an eight-foot robot named Hector. The story is, Farrah and Kirk live and work alone on a space station named Saturn 3 and have sort of an Adam and Eve-type existence, growing crops and taking showers together. And everything is just grand. That is, until Harvey and Hector show up and throw everything into conflict and chaos. And the story for Saturn 3 is by John Barry. While working on Lucky Lady in 1975, John Barry would spend his nights working on a story, then called The Helper, but later changed to Saturn 3. Barry got his Lucky Lady director, Stanley Donnan, interested in his story. Stanley Donnan's initial interest in Saturn 3 was to help out a friend. I think he saw great promise in Barry as a director and really wanted to help him out, and so that's how it started. But, it, I mean, it began as a very low-budget movie at the time. And as, you know, people like Kirk Douglas and Farrah Force became involved, the budget just became higher and higher and higher. And so there was more at stake. This is Greg Moss. I'm Greg Moss. I'm the curator of the website Something Is Wrong With Saturn 3. Greg runs a website dedicated to the production of Saturn 3. If you need to know something about this film, he's the guy to ask. In 2012... I set up uh, like a personal blog to talk about filmmaking. And I, at that time, I was thinking about writing a piece on Saturn 3, the making of the film. But originally, I planned to write just a short 12,000-word piece on the making of the film. And it ended up blowing out to about 8,500 words, far too long for my blog. So I decided to actually set up a dedicated blog to put the article on and hopefully draw uh, interest from fans around the world. In fact, Greg is so associated with Saturn 3 that when the movie was released on Blu-ray by Shout Factory in 2013, Greg was asked to do a commentary on it. And if you'll allow me to sidebar here for a minute, I will share with you the best fact about Greg's Saturn 3 relationship. When that Blu-ray was being put together by Shout Factory, they got in contact with Greg. They needed his help with something else. And then they told me that they'd come across a missing scene, which I actually saw Back in 1980, in the Australian release of the film, we actually had an extra minute that people in the UK and the US didn't see. And it's the famous scene where Farrah's in her kind of Barbarella outfit. We actually saw that in Australia. When Screen Factory told me that they'd found a uh, copy of this scene. But there was a problem. The version Shout Factory had was in German. So what they were asking me to do was supply them with the transcripts of that scene in English. 
so they could put subtitles up. And I basically said to them, I can do better than that. I have a copy of the actual audio recording of that scene in English. Because back in the day, you know, I was at the age where I would uh, go to the drive-in and actually audio record on cassette tape the movies that I saw. And one of them was Staten 3 in it. So I had an audio recording on cassette tape of this, this scene in English. And Greg still had the audio cassette all these years later. And in case you wanted to hear what an Australian drive-in speaker playing Saturn III sounded like in 1980, here it is. Just a quick warning. This clip, which features Farrah Fawcett and Kirk Douglas, also features a lot of disco in it. So I digitized it and sent it off to them, and they married it up with the image. So the, the missing scene you see on the Blu-ray is actually a combination of the German release scene of the film, but with my audio over the top of it. And they married it up so well. In fact, they did such a good job that when the Blu-ray was released in Germany a year or two later, I think it was 2015, because in Germany that scene was actually incorporated into the body of the film. So with the German Blu-ray release, they actually inserted that scene back into the film with my audio. Okay, sidebar over. Stanley Donnan brought the Saturn III story idea to Lord Lou Grade. Lord was his title, mind you, not his name. Grade was a television producer for most of his career dating back to the mid-1950s but made the jump into producing features in the mid-1970s. At the time he got involved with Saturn III, he was in the middle of a big slate of films he was making for ITC. Grade liked the story and agreed to make the picture. Stanley Donnan would produce it, novelist Martin Amos would write the screenplay, and John Barry would step into the director's chair for the first time. Barry was planning on working on The Empire Strikes Back. But when Saturn 3 got the green light, he couldn't pass on the opportunity to direct his own movie. And the story behind the casting is that Lord Lou Grade got on a plane with the Saturn 3 script. He read it and liked it, noticed Farrah Fawcett was on his flight and gave it to her and said, I think you'd be perfect for this. And when the plane landed, Saturn 3 not only had a green light, but also had a star attached. Kirk Douglas and Harvey Keitel were later cast, but they weren't the original choices. Sean Connery and Michael Caine were who Lord Lou really wanted, but neither signed on. The script itself was written and rewritten a number of times. Uh, according to Martin Amos, he had very little to do with the final shooting draft. Yeah, but this, uh, this early draft, it's actually credited to a writer who I'd never really come across, an English writer called Evan Hunter, and it turns out he was best known for writing the screenplay for The Birds for Alfred Hitchcock. It was actually another writer called uh, Frederick Raphael, uh, was an American screenwriter. He went on to work with Stanley Kubrick on Eyes Wide Shut. Through the rewrites, it probably should be noted that Farrah Fawcett's role became smaller and Kirk Douglas's became bigger. For his crew, while his Star Wars collaborators were busy with Empire Strikes Back, Barry did manage to snag a couple of key guys from Superman the movie. Stuart Craig, who did the art design for Superman, 
would do the production design for Saturn III. Craig would go on to do the production design for all eight Harry Potter films. And Colin Chilvers, who won an Oscar for his visual effects in Superman, would do the visual effects for Saturn III. Billy Williams, who had worked on The Exorcist, would be the cinematographer. Here's Williams being interviewed about Saturn III for Web of Stories back in 2017. I was very thrilled when, when he invited me to photograph it for me at Shepperton Studios. Stuart Craig was the designer, and we had some wonderful futuristic sets. Long, curved tunnels made of a kind of black plastic material, which, you know, offered all sorts of dramatic setups. Considering John Barry's production design background, it's no surprise the film he'd be directing would have an impressive set. It took 10 weeks to build the space station, which was comprised of a series of tunnels that took up not one, but two whole sound stages. Which is pretty big when you consider there's only three people and a robot in the cast. Crew members would frequently get lost finding their way around. And with cast and crew in place, filming on Saturn 3 began. The robot was a big guy in a suit with all kinds of antennae popping out and all of a really weird costume. And it t- turned out to be a nightmare every time we had to do a shot with the robot because it took so long to put it all together. So we started, and I thought things were going very well. I was getting on very well with John Barry, and very visual, as you, as you imagine, with a production designer. Things were looking good. Um, and we'd been shooting for two weeks, and Monday morning we were called on to the set to be told that the director had been replaced and that the producer was now going to direct the picture. And the producer was Stanley Donan. It's true. All of two weeks into filming, John Barry was fired from the movie he originated, the movie he was to make his directorial debut on. And now, Stanley Donan, the man who was out of place on Lucky Lady five years earlier, was stepping into the director's chair of a movie he was really out of place in. I want to be clear here. Stanley Donan is not the bad guy. And he definitely did not want to be directing Saturn 3. He didn't want to do it. <laughs> it wasn't his bag, you know. Um, sci-fi, he had no interest in science fiction at all. He stepped in because he had to. Uh, otherwise, the production just would have collapsed. So he felt probably pressured into taking over control of the production. So what exactly was the problem? Why was John Barry replaced just two weeks into filming? Billy Williams explains it. There was nothing wrong with the first two weeks' work, except that we were a little bit behind, and we were behind because it was taking so long to um, any time we had to do something with the, mm. with the robot. And Kirk Douglas had complained that the oh. director was spending too much time with the robot. But it, but it was inevitable. In fact, the picture went weeks and weeks over schedule because... You couldn't avoid the fact that the robot had to be in certain scenes. Like, he has to play a game. The robot played chess with Kirk Douglas. And so the robot had to do all the move, picking up hand, picking up the pieces with a kind of claw-like mechanism. It was all these animatronics which had to be worked out. Greg Moss has a more detailed explanation as to why Barry was replaced. He wasn't necessarily fired, but he was forced to leave because... There were problems with the, the robot at the time. It wasn't working quite as well as it should have. So that was you know, taking a lot of time on the set, and that was upsetting Kirk Douglas. 
uh, he kind of felt that Barry was giving the robot more, you know, concern uh, than actually dealing with him, Kirk Douglas. So Kirk actually, you know, was complaining about this to Stanley Donan. So Donan stepped in and decided to actually be on set with Barry and sort of be there as Barry was directing. And of course, Barry didn't like this. <laughs> You know, having uh, the producer being on set the entire time and he kind of felt that he couldn't operate that way. And so basically he left. Donnan would later say that the actors ganged up on John Barry. That Barry hadn't directed people before and didn't know how to deal with the personalities. He also put the blame on himself for not realizing the situation that Barry was in. And John Barry did not take the debacle of Saturn III well. He became very depressed. John did invite Les and I to come down and have a chat with him to make him feel better. And we walked around Chapman Studios and he said, you know, I'm going to get fired any day now. And he was explaining why. You know, and we, we were sympathizing with him because I could see how depressed he was. And he went across to uh, the Caribbean. He was so depressed. And then George and Gary and Robert Watts invited him to go and be the second unit director on Empire Strikes Back. Going from Saturn 3 to Empire Strikes Back should be a win to anyone familiar with both films. And unfortunately for John Barry, though, it would be his final act. When you had that, that lunch with him on the set, of, uh, or, or around the time that he's filming Saturn 3, did you see him after that? That was the last time I saw him. One week after joining Empire Strikes Back, John Barry came down with a fever of 105. He was sent to the hospital and died a day later of meningitis. He was 43 years old. He went into work feeling terrible, telling Robert Watts early in the morning, he said, I've got the flu, and Robert has a very strong instinct, and he's quite a spiritual man, and he said, no, John, I think there's something wrong. I'm going to send you to hospital, and John kind of argued a bit, but he said, no, no, you're going in, and you know, that was it, meningitis. It just ate through his body. Saturn 3 was finished by Stanley Donnan and released into theaters on February 15, 1980. It was a disaster. Critics hated the movie, calling it cheap-looking and sloppy and shoddy. Roger Ebert hated it so much that he included it in his book, I Hated, Hated, Hated This Movie. If you watch Saturn 3, you'll immediately notice something off with Harvey Keitel. It's his voice. He's been dubbed by another actor, Roy Dotrice. Now, there's two explanations out there about why this happened. That's kind of up in the air. Right? There were various different theories. Even Roy Dotrice isn't entirely sure uh, why he was brought in. I mean, there are various ideas. Uh, one of the ideas is that Lou Grade didn't particularly like uh, Harvey Keitel's Brooklyn accent and uh, wanted something a bit more mid-Atlantic, which is odd because, of course, you know, Farrah and Kirk are both American. And so what difference would it make? So there's that. Also, the other idea is that Harvey Keitel had such a bad experience making the film uh, that he didn't want to come back and do any uh, looping. I'm much more likely to believe theory number two on that one. Even Billy Williams, Saturn III's cinematographer, didn't think too much of the final product. There was a huge investment in this picture by Lou Grade, who also financed Voyage of the Damned. And... Um, you know, a big-name cast, but um, in the end, it didn't, it didn't really hold together. And although we spent a lot of time making the film, they then had to put the special effects on. We went to Hollywood to do the special effects. And when you look at them now, 
they, they just don't hold up. John Barry's death shut down production on Empire Strikes Back so the crew could attend his funeral. But Barry's funeral also shut down another film. Stanley Kubrick halted filming on The Shining so he could attend as well. And despite his work that most movie fans would instantly recognize, John Barry remains unknown to them. Barry is one of the main reasons Greg Moss has devoted so much of his time to Saturn Three. After I put the site together, pretty much straight away, fans started contacting me from all over the world and emails and comments and, you know, dozens and dozens of people. And the interesting thing I found was that most of the people who were fans of the movie had a very similar experience to myself in that they were around about the same age when they saw it. And why it had such an impact on them. But it's been great uh, interacting with these fans, you know. I mean, that was part of the reason why I wanted to set up the site in the first place. But really, the, the reason why I wanted to set up the site was to set the story straight to do with Barry's firing. Because at the time, there was a lot of misinformation going around, uh, all kind of rumours and innuendo, basically saying he was incompetent. And so I really wanted to set the story straight and basically try and give him some dignity back because he had such a great career and, you know, of course he died soon after leaving Saturn Free. So I wanted to leave some kind of legacy for Barry. And Roger Christian is working on a documentary that will highlight John Barry and some of the lesser-known people who made Star Wars what it is today. I asked Roger to explain to me who John Barry was and what he meant to movies like Star Wars. John was incredible. He was very, very smart very intelligent and very supportive to directors and it was you get it done you know whatever it takes and and in fact he always had that kind of law if you didn't have a notebook with you a small back notebook to take notes either what he said or the director said you get fired that was a law that was the one thing because and it wasn't for being an officious general it was because we get a massive information thrown at us while you're working and it's easy to forget when you're dealing with you know 20 30 things 40 a day so you just made notes i always did that still do and i still tell my art directors to do it and he was just masterful at understanding what a director wanted and getting it done i was working on phantom menace with doing second unit directing with George. I was walking across one of the stages at Leeson Studios between sets with George and he stopped. And he looked at me and he said, I really miss John Barry. And that's because he was a massive support to George. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry, presented by Movie Maker. Visit moviemaker.com for more great podcasts, articles, and information about movies. There's also a great newsletter you can sign up for. It's good. No, seriously. Thanks to my guests, Roger Christian and Greg Moss. And to Web of Stories for permission to use their interview with Billy Williams. Web of Stories is a great site to find interviews with people from all walks of life. Check it out. You can visit Greg Moss's Saturn 3 website at Saturn3makingof.com. If you want to get in touch, you certainly can. On Twitter, it's at the industry13. Facebook, it's the industry pod. Or if you want, you can send me an email, dan at moviemaker.com. You can read and review the show on Apple Podcasts, which is really just a nice thing to do. It helps the show gain some visibility. And there's over a million podcasts out there now, so we could use the help. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll be back again soon 
with another lesser-known story of the things that went on in the industry. <laughs>